we're, we're doing uh where, where did john where did uh, john go yeah he is he's right there There he goes oh you know what let me fix my thing here. i got two people all right so here we are we're doing police off the cuff and i guess this is the midday edition so welcome to police off the cuff midday edition uh well it's afternoon it's not midday it's after three it's 3 p.m dude you're... it's morning if you're a comic <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go. Three of us old bastards belong in a gin mill somewhere, you know. <laughs> so, those uh, days, those days are long gone, my friend. Unfortunately, <laughs> I remember. It, I remember when you do a midnight, and then you you go to a bar at, at eight o'clock in the morning. I could never get used to that. I don't know how guys, because then you had to go home and sleep and just come right back to work, hungover. Dude. Dude, it was like that in comedy. I, I I look back to the days when we would close the club down, and uh, you know, back back in the day, it was four o'clock. Was it two now? Right, two two a.m. The bar's got to be closed, basically. Oh, four. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Once the door was shut, the rule was you could keep on serving as long as the door was locked. And uh, most days, we watched the sun come up with a tequila in hand. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, speaking of that, what, what, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to introduce you. Um, you're a legend in comedy, a legendary. Ah. You are. You really are. You're. You're. Um, what was it? The night of the improv. At the that was your show, 1989. There was a couple of them. My uh, actually, the first TV show I ever did was called Comedy Tonight, right out of New York, and um, it was the old Metro Media Studios on 70 something Street. Um, and it was such a new uh, acquisition for the fledgling Fox network. I remember them scraping the letters of Metro Media off the glass door, and there was uh, an artist hand-painting Fox Studios. Remember when they used to hand-paint glass? No, there was no stencils. He was hand-painting Fox Studios back in 84, 85 when we were there. And Gabe Pressman, do you remember that name? I remember that guy, yeah. So Gabe Pressman was walking through the lobby and I guess he had his eye on the curb and didn't notice the door was closed because they had scraped the stencil off. It was just clean glass. The artist had yet to paint Fox Studios and he was leaning in nose first toward the curb and he came in a full stride and planted his face right against that closed glass door. And I'll never forget it left a perfect because he had makeup on, you know, news makeup. It's like it's, a, it's like the makeup they use when, when, they, uh, when they're making up a corpse. And the side of his nose and his lips and his profile was in a perfect image against the, against the glass on the door. But that was the year that I did my first TV show. It was called Comedy Tonight at Metro Media, then Fox Studios. And a funny PS, when they started rerunning that show, I was driving through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And as I was pulling into the, uh, the toll booth, I heard my voice coming out of the toll booth. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And I pull in and I notice the toll collector is watching a little black and white 13 inch TV. And it's a rerun with me. And I'm on stage on this little black and white television. The guy's counting single dollar bills. And he's really focused on what he's doing. And I just look over, I see it's me and I go, how do you like that show? And he goes, yeah, he's counting the money. It's a good show. If it ain't busy, I get to what? And then he looks over and he goes, holy shit. <laughs> holy shit. You're, you're, the, you're that guy. You're the guy. And I said, yeah, I saw you through the TV. I wanted to see how you're doing. <laughs> so, well, my first experience we ever with introduce who, 
who John is. Did we ever tell our audience his name? No, but I was getting to that. And then we just kind of, <laughs> I usually do like a little intro, a little build up, but we just jumped right in tonight. Um, Go ahead. I, I gotta, I gotta, it's my fault. I should have reined it in. But uh, our, our guest today is John Maroney, legendary com uh, com uh, comedian. Um, you probably want, I've seen you work on a number of occasions uh, and worked with you, had the honor, and I've never seen anybody better. And, and I've seen everybody. It doesn't matter the crowd. I mean, but for crying out loud, you were what well, you were Jerry Seinfeld before Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself that, but uh, I mean, but just think about that time, though. I mean, I don't even know if Jerry was on TV yet in '84. He started two years before me. I started in '78, and uh, he started a couple of years before I did. But he was already once when I was there. He was already pretty, uh, pretty well respected and established as a comedian. And uh, people already, uh, you know, projecting great things for him. I, I did get to work with Eddie Murphy when he was only 17, which was really cool. Because I remember a couple of the places like Dixon's White House, which was way out on Long Island. And of course, the comic strip in New York City. Uh, at Dixon's, he used to have to wait outside to uh, do his set because he wasn't 18 yet. Well, he was one of those guys. He went to Nassau Community, I think. He was one of those. Nassau Who, Eddie? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then I remember Richard Dixon's White House Inn. It was one Correct. of the comedy clubs on. I think it was in Merrick. I think I'm not positive. Uh, I believe it was a little further out than Merrick, but uh, out, out by Huntington. But oh, okay. Yeah, Eddie. Uh, one of the first uh, compliments from a, another comic I I remember getting. I can't say I ever got was was from Eddie. One night I was at the at the comic strip, and he hadn't really hit big yet but everybody knew he was going to be huge and I walked in and he was sitting in the comic strip up in the back there's a, there's like a little step up in the back where you can sit little alcove and I walked past and he was sitting with a couple of his of his friends and I waved and he waved back and I overheard him say he leaned into one of his friends and he said that white boy there is funny and I was like <laughs> that was it man I was I was like that's it Eddie Murphy thinks I'm funny and um it was one of it was one of the one of those waypoints in comedy where you go. Uh, it's like when you're a Navy SEAL, you know, a Navy SEAL. The last test, I believe, is when you get to work with these team members and they decide whether or not you're a Navy SEAL. It's like when other comics decide you're a comic. That's how you know you're a comic. It's it's kind of a fun initiation, actually. You get the uh, yeah, you get the little uh, he man. <laughs> Woman Haters Club signal. Remember that? Remember yeah. Little Rascals? Yeah, the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Yeah, it's like other comics think you're a comic. That's when you're a comic. You know, There's John, when you, when you told that story about pulling up to the toll booth and the guy was um, watching you on TV and he freaked out, I was tending ball one time at Pete's Tavern and the song Monday, Monday by the Mamas and the Papas came on the jukebox. And John Phillips was at the bar and he was singing along with it. Oh, that's this awesome. This woman next to him says, Wow, you have a pretty good voice. And she yeah. listens. She goes, "In fact, you sound just like the record." <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I had no awesome. idea. I had no idea who he was. I thought it was so funny, you know. <laughs> Where's Pete's Bar? 18th and Irving Place. Oh, okay. In Gramercy Park, Pete's. Gramercy, it's one okay. of the oldest bars in the city. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, tell me you don't know that place. Would you forget you were there? I probably stumbled into it once or twice sure in my you life. Did. Yeah, hey, I don't remember though. Didn't we do Vegas together? Uh, if it was, did, did you we and do? Resta. 
Yes, we did. We did Vegas. That's right. We did the Orleans Hotel. We did a big. Um, Wasn't it uh, for Bereznoy? Perez, yeah, Larry Bresnoy. It was the uh, New York Tactical Officers Association West. We went out to, to Vegas. We did it here at the Turning Stone Casino in New York, and then we did one out west in Nevada. Yeah. That was pretty good times right there. That was that was re- that was really fun. Yeah, that was a re- really good time. Cops are a good audience. You know, comics freak out. Uh, there's 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 only been a handful of guys that uh, didn't talk themselves into a bad set. And we're able to pull it off. And I mean, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, really good, strong comedians who saw 800 cops sitting in an audience and they went. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> but I said, I told them, I said, listen, if you go out and you just grab these guys by the nut and women, grab them by the private and swing them around. That's how they like to be treated. You know, they like when you come out and you're aggressive, but uh, they're, a, they're an intimidating group of eight, 800 to 1000 cops staring at you going, yeah, yeah, yeah who's, who's this guy? Who's this guy? We had to close the bar down for him. <laughs> what do you think about now with comics that are cops, like Mark and myself, doing cop material when the, you know, the public is in such a cop-hating mode? Um, you know, that's a personal issue. I don't think it, I don't think anything's off limits or taboo. I think it's all about uh, content, not form. And what I mean by that is. If you present anything in a funny way and do it in a non-threatening way, if you go up on stage and the audience trusts you, they know they don't have to fear you. Um, You can touch on cancer. You can touch on police work. You can touch on racism. You can touch on all of the taboo subjects as long as they know they're safe with you. I mean, look at a guy like Pryor. Uh, Do you think anything today would be hands off to someone like that on stage? Well, he could get canceled, just like so many other comics are being. You, you could get canceled, and you'll, you know, you may suffer the short-term effects, but long-term, you're going to. Uh, the cream always rises to the top in this, in in most businesses, and um, like even now, I heard Cops is back filming again, and Live PD is back again. I didn't think that was going to stay canceled forever. So I think if you go up and you you're comf- comfortable and confident with yourself. I think you can, anybody can, I want, I'm going to say pull off. It sounds like you're getting away with something. Yeah. Perform in any way that suits you and also keeps the audience engaged in a way where uh, most of them aren't going to walk out. But you know how it is. Somebody's always going to find a reason to be uh, pissed off at you. So uh, today. Yeah. So, hey, no, I, I, <sighs> After I retired, I went steady just doing the police material. And I, in environments, like you said, that could have been hostile, whatever, it never, never bothered me. Like you, I have, the, I have what you talked about, the ability to, um, to, to present the material in a way that we're all going to have fun with it. But since this turn of events right now, it's, I just don't want to do it because I don't have that many opportunities to get up on stage right now. And I don't want to waste them. I want to have fun with them. Right. And I've written jokes in the meantime. And I'm excited about doing those. And right now, I'm, I'm not in the mood to talk about any. I just want to have fun with it. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like, my, my, those are my little 8, 15 minutes. Because over here, um, what are we doing? I did somebody's backyard the other day. I'm talking about, this is his house. And you know, in the back, <laughs> you know, he sets up tables and chairs. He has three shows a weekend. 
<laughs> and you That's know, it's funny. like 15 people. I did a rooftop. I did a drive-in with a cut. When you when you um, when you're uh, you can't hear them laughing, but they flick the lights. So oh yeah yeah they they yeah they high they hit the high beams. So I just don't want to waste those opportunities. God forbid, maybe even getting into a small discussion with somebody in their opinion. I just want to do my do some jokes, have some fun, and then when, they, uh, when I feel like doing it, I'll do it again. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, uh, it's probably the best attitude to take it. When I was hosting a radio show, and people would come in and they would ask for guidance or direction, that you know, a lot of them were intimidated by the fact that we were going on the air, and they. They were not entertainers. And they said, well, tell what should we do? I, we have no, I said, no rules, but a couple of goals, funny, fun, friendly. First go for the funny, otherwise keep it fun, but make sure it's friendly. You know, we're not looking to provoke controversy and uh, we're here to have a good time. The end. Yeah. So if you can do that, you've done your job. But you know, look, even the, the top podcast in the country, Joe Rogan, uh, they're trying to cancel his ass. I mean, how ridiculous. Let's see if he, you know, if he had all backpedals. I hope he doesn't. Hope He's he a macho guy, you know. Right now, we're trying to get rid of all the macho. That that idea of a man. Yeah. Uh, you know, like just the presence of a man. John disappeared. John, Dude, I'm I sorry. Sign on again. What happened? There you go. You're coming back. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. Well, keep telling your story, Mark. He'll come back. What was it again? Oh, um, he's a macho man, Joe Rogan. You know, and they don't well, you know, he well, he's the epitome of a man right now. We're trying to feminize the country. Yeah, we're trying to get away from that uh, that alpha male in control thing. They want to put women in power. They want to put uh, different genders in power for no other reason. Just, you know. They don't like the alpha male. Yeah, so specifically the alpha white male, you know. Yeah, and when they couldn't, when they couldn't really, they, they, you know, they pushed the bear. Yeah. Push the bear, you know, constantly. And then when they can't get him, they go after his friends, the Chris D'Elia and the Brian Callahan. Uh, that's what they do. So. Yeah. Listen, that's the way the world is right now. I don't know. I think that the, 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 you know, the loudest dog, you know, I don't know the expression, but the squeaky wheel gets the grease and the people that complain the most, the 15 or 20% are getting the stage right now. And 80% of the people just are, are just letting them do it. I don't know why that's happening right now, you know? Yeah, I don't get it either, man. I, I just um, I was watching this uh, Al Madrigal. He's he's a great comedian, and he was doing a bit about um, somebody writing a restaurant complaint. You know. Yeah, go ahead, keep going. He's trying to get a hold of me on text. Okay, and the, the, no, the guy is just reading the whole letter that the guy submitted for uh, what's that site that uh, you review restaurants and stuff. Like basically, who's got time for that? You know. <laughs> And he does such a wonderful job with it. So uh, it's just like that, just complainers. Well, yeah. I mean, again, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The people that complain the loudest, they're going to get pacified. And know? Sebastian uh, Maniscalco, too, has a bit about that. The salmon sucked. Let's get the fuck out of here. Like that's, <laughs> that's his whole complaint. You're back. What the hell happened to you? What do you got a 
1860 computer? Oh, no, your sound, your sound again is is messed up. I'm using the same microphone I was before. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? You you're using the mic? I'm using the computer mic. I'm, oh, okay. I'm not, yeah. I, I don't know why you sound like a robot now. You didn't. Before. You want me to plug in the other one and see? No, if no, it no. Is. You sounded good. It must. Oh, okay. It probably has to warm up like an old car. Yeah, yeah. Because I put in plenty of charcoal. I don't know why it's not working. <laughs> More lighter fluid. You missed. You, you missed. You missed a lot. What were you talking about? We started with Joe Rogan and why people are trying to uh, cancel his ass. You know. Well, a um. He's blanking out again. What the fuck is wrong with this thing? Damn it. Keep going. We'll keep talking. He'll, he'll he'll have to buy a new computer and you know come back. Where does he live? He lives upstate, right? <laughs> I think he's upstate, right? He must be, yeah. I think yeah, well, I wanted to start getting into uh you know, you know what I wanted to start asking him about. So I'll hold off because it's a surprise. But anyway. Um Van Halen, man. That's so horrible. Yep. I've been listening to a lot of Van Halen these uh, last two days right now. John's and coming a, back. He's coming back. We hope it'll... Uh, what a guitarist, man. A virtuoso. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know, John. Are you, what, are you using a laptop or are you using a an iPad? What are you using? Using my laptop. It's a brand new laptop. Oh, okay. It's maybe it's your maybe Wi-Fi. Right You're starting to come back, but slowly. It's like it's like a caveman hitting two rocks together, trying to uh, trying to get a spark. <laughs> I don't know what uh, I don't know what's going on here. Well, talk. We'll hear your audio at least. We can't see your video. Testing. Testing. One. Two. All right. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, we just can't see you. All right. You're gonna have to go without my, my lovely presence. Well, you can you can talk to us. We just can't see you. Oh, now I now I can see. Oh no, well, you're you're on delay probably on on YouTube because I have you on YouTube with my phone. <laughs> you don't think the YouTube's knocking them out, do you? No, no. <laughs> they probably are. I don't think so. Well, anywho, um, what were we talking about? We're talking about Joe Rogan and the fact that... Oh, no, no, after that. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about, John? So a lot of people don't know this, but um, you you also work as law, in law enforcement, don't you? Yeah, I'm actually out on a, an injury right now. I'm, I had a shoulder replacement after uh, I had some... Went into a wall with a guy booking some drunken idiot and uh I chipped a bone in my shoulder so they did a they did a full shoulder replacement so I'm about two months into the recovery so it's uh, I'm actually feeling really good better than I've ever felt it's awesome I heard that that's really one of the hardest uh surgeries to recover from I heard that but until you until it happened I wasn't convinced <laughs> yeah it's pretty uh, it's pretty intense but uh I I I should have done it sooner, to be quite honest with you. But yeah, it's it's I'm on the mend. It's all good now. Yeah. How does how does one of the best comedians in the world get a job as a cop, dude? I, you know that's something I always wanted to do, and uh, 
I, I got... I got the opportunity about 10 years ago, I was doing radio uh, in upstate New York and a, a case broke up near us and we had the public information officer come in and he was so funny. We, we, we hardly got to talk about this big case. And I said, dude, you gotta come back, do this on a regular basis. So he came in once a week and uh, we called the segment Ask Officer Dave. And he saw that I really had this fondness for doing police work. And as we were talking about, I told me yeah, I was going to be a cop before I became a comic. I actually got called for the NYPD. I took the test and got called for the academy and went through the whole process. And at the same time was 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 working up to become a comic. I was a working comic with a day job, but I was still getting gigs. And then right at that tipping point where I had to make the call, comedy just blew up. And it, there was no there wasn't even a choice at that point. It was like there was no looking back. But I always that was always my first uh, passion was to become a cop. So when he told me, he said, well, listen, I know a department up here that's looking for guys. I was 50. And uh, I said, I said, who the hell is going to hire a 50 year old recruit? He said, oh, up here, it's different. You know, if, if you pass the physical requirements for the DCJS and, the, and a, a department will sponsor you, they'll put you through the academy. Yeah. So I met the chief and uh, a year later, I was driving fast with a gun. <laughs> Wow. So it was great. I had the best of both worlds. I, it's a part-time gig. We're a full-time department with all part-time guys. So the other guys work in, uh, you know, they're, they're troopers or park police, uh, not troopers. They don't allow that, but they're in some other kind of law enforcement and they do this gig on the side. So, so you're like, uh, you're like the Steven Seagal of comedy then. <laughs> I'm like the, uh, I'm like the Jerry Seinfeld of police work. <laughs> you know how Steven Seagal has that, you know, he's a, he's a cop too, right? Yeah, I saw his, I saw his, uh, his show. I, I, I thought he was pretty good, actually, to tell you the truth. I love the scene where he goes into that bar and they go, he's nothing without that badge and gun. He's nothing without that badge and gun, right? Dude, that was, so, it was such a good movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, but you're talking about the movie, but he had a TV show, Steven Seagal, where he was a cop. Yeah, and he really yeah, it was, was something like, law, Seagal law or something. Was that it? Yeah, he was like a sheriff or something like that. Seagal lawman or some, some. yeah, he, he still is a sheriff. He's like the deputy chief or maybe even a chief. I don't know. <laughs> He's down in, down in Louisiana, I think. So you're, you're up here like, and you're like over 50 right now. And you're still rolling around with drunks and perps and, and getting your shoulder banged up. Wow, man, that's fucking crazy. Well, I'm taking, I, you know, I'm, I, the patrol up here is not like it is down there. I mean, that was an anomaly. That, I mean, we rarely go hands-on with everybody. That really was an unusual incident. It, it's, the, the, the police work up here is, is mostly quality of life stuff. Uh, you know, domestics, uh, a lot of vehicle and traffic stuff, you know, a, a lot of nonviolent complaints. Every once in, I mean, you gotta still be aware of what you're doing. But it's not like the city where you guys had to deal with where you're you're getting we never hold calls, for instance. There's never a time where, you know, that you know, what are you what are you holding for essential? Never. <laughs> Maybe once or twice the whole time I've ever worked up here. And I've worked in three different departments. I worked in a housing up in Troy. I, I work uh, in the town I live in, and I work in another little town called Nassau. So um, you know, the stuff we're mostly proactive. We're out there making a show, talking to people. We know who the players are. It really is round up the usual suspects. When burglaries start happening happening in the area or car larcenies or that kind of stuff, we know we pretty much know to within two or three people who it is. 
It's not like it's not like what you guys dealt with at all. And it's a lot of it's all single man patrols and you'll be waiting for your backup sometimes for 15, 20 minutes. So you got to really be careful and you really got to have good skill sets for talking people down. You ever use your uh, comedy skills to uh, talk people down? Dude, always. I, I, I try to tell other people, I, you know, I demonst- you know, demonstrate the approach. I'll show, you know, if I'm field training somebody, um, you know, B- Bill, they call it pattern interrupting. Somebody has, uh, you know, th- they're all focused on, on, on whatever it is they want. And if you can get inside their feedback loop and interrupt it, it, it totally dis- disrupts what, you know, what they were focused on. And it makes them kind of, it breaks their pattern and their focus of their attention. And doing that with a joke is probably the best tool uh, on, on your belt that you could bring into it, into a, a nasty situation. If you make someone laugh, they don't want to beat the shit out of you anymore. Right. Right. You can't, you, you can't laugh and think of something else at the same time. It's impossible. It's like that old try to laugh and sneeze at once. You can't do it. You can't laugh and be focused on hurting me or somebody else. It just doesn't happen. Can't happen. Well, usually if you make someone laugh, they, they like you, you know? Yeah. It's well, you're, now you're, they're you're like all, you made them laugh, you know? Yeah. You're already connecting with them, you know, can make, making a bond. I mean, we still, again, you still have to be careful and you still have to, it, it, sometimes it does blow up in my face. I try to make a joke with somebody or make light of a situation. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining some kind of stupid civilian complaint. But um, uh, most of the time, it's like being a comic. You, you get on stage and you figure out, this will work, this won't. There's something inside of you intuitively that says, yeah, I can push this a little bit. Same thing on the street. You know, the, you, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, a subject, you kind of get a vibe for how far you can go with them or not. You Same know, I, thing. Had, I, I had a case like that where this guy shot and killed the bully uh, on the block, you know, and he was a one-legged guy shot and killed the block bully. So the detective duty captain came to me and he says, what's going on? I said, well, the guy, you know, the guy shot and killed the guy. He goes, what are they saying about it? I go, they're saying he doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he looked at me and he so much didn't want to laugh. Like he tried to keep his a, a smile erupted on his head. It was, it was um, John Rowe's brother who was okay. a captain, you know. Kenny Rowe, and he didn't want to laugh, but he just, he just, he tried to hold it in. He started laughing. <laughs> you know, the guy, the guy that got me to gig, he was a homicide detective, and he was really, the one thing I noticed about, about great police work, it, it has a parallel with great comedy in that uh, you still have to be able to think nanosecond quick within an instant and make a decision and, and roll with it. You, you really need to lean into it, like when you're delivering especially if you work in the crowd or something extemporaneously, you can't half step uh, a comeback line. You have to feel it, know it, and lean into it. Well, the guy that got me this job was an old school homicide guy. And um, I said to him once, joking around, I said, hey, Dave, did you ever use your weapon in anger? And he laughed at me. And he said, my mind's my best weapon. I never use it in anger. And I thought that was such a great response. And he didn't flinch. He just right back and came back with that line. So I ran into him a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, and uh, he's been off the job now forever, but he was telling me about a case that he had that he was called to testify in on. He was accused or he had to testify in defense of some new law against shocking the consciousness of a subject. Have you heard about that? No. 
So he had this guy who shook, they were pretty sure he shook this, this infant to death. It was his, uh, it was his uh, significant other's child. He was not the father. And they, they were pretty sure he was the only one home based on all of the, the, the trauma the child was uh, displaying. He picked the kid up and shook it until it was unconscious. So uh, they're interviewing him and the child's being worked on at the hospital. And uh, one of the uh, uniform guys motioned for uh, Dave to step out of the interview room. And Dave stepped out and, and the uniform guy said, the baby just died. Without flinching, Dave ran back in and he said to the suspect, he said, okay, the kid just flatlined, but the doctors say if they know how he went unconscious, they can probably save him. And the guy snapped and he went, I shook the baby, I shook the baby. So on that, they got a conviction. And now years later, this new law stating you cannot shock the consciousness of a subject being interviewed. But I think you had already waived his rights, but I don't want to get into that. Dave had to go and testify about shocking his consciousness. Now, that being said, I never, at least personally, I don't think I ever would have thought that quickly to pivot and take the angle, walk back into the interview and say, the kid's still alive, but we can save him if you fess up. That was, that's as as quick and as smart and as innovative as, as any comeback I've seen on stage in a comedy club with a comic. It's the same skill set, same content, different form. Right. But you know something, John, where that comes from? That comes from doing thousands of interviews. And thousands of... Okay. Just like you as a comic, your, what you do comes from thousands of, of hours of stage time. You know, you know, I, you know it, I would say it looks like that on the surface, but any comic in their most honest moment, I think would tell you it comes from somewhere beyond that. And we just take credit for it. And I'll, and I'll give you, for instance, people used to ask me all the time, and it was a nice compliment, but they would say, how do you say that? How do you come up with that stuff so fast? And my answer is, was a question. How is it you don't? Mm-hmm. I, I see these lines. I see these, uh, these responses in my mind's eye. And I just repeat them. So to me, it's analogous to complimenting a stereo speaker for the music coming out of it, going, hey, that's a great tune and tapping the speaker on, on the top. I just am repeating what I hear. I can't say it's mine. It's like out there in the ethers. And I just plucked it down. You know, I just put I'll 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 take uh, um, I'll take the credit for standing up there and saying it. But I can't I can't say that, uh, that that I owned it. Nah, I heard it and then just repeated it. Right, right. Yeah, I always gravitated, when I was young and in class, I always gravitated towards um, the like the, the kid, the witty one, you know, or the funny one. And I kind of sort of, uh, I guess subconsciously I did it because I wanted to learn about timing and I wanted to learn about delivery. Even from such a, such a young age, all my, all the friends that I had, it was always uh, the funniest kid in class, you know? And I was just, I guess it was, that's what it was. Or even like the Irish kid in, in school, you know, like the one with the wise ass answers all the time. You know what I'm saying? To me, it was always a challenge to, to be that, to always have uh, a, a quick response. And also too, you know, from, you know, talking to girls and stuff like that. And uh, that, which is another aspect of a quick mind always having a snappy 
flirt line. You know what I'm saying? So yep. in those two aspects, your mind has to be sharp. You have to always be thinking. And you, as a comedian, you train yourself to think funny. You always, you're always, always thinking of the what, what, and you not only that, but you hate when you miss an opportunity. I mean, you're like, fuck, I should have said that, man. It comes to you like a minute later and you realize you blew it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but is it to me, if you're a wordsmith and you're a constant and you're paying attention to a conversation, that's the one thing about uh, I learned how to doing this stuff. And you probably know about it from the radio, too, is that when you're listening a lot. The jokes just happen because people leave themselves wide open for it. They don't realize it. You know what I'm saying? So then you just become the one that instead of trying to make everybody laugh all the time, you just lay in the cut and say something of a wise ass thing every once in a while. Yeah, I'm just pointing. I'm just pointing it out. That's that's exactly you're exactly right. I mean, you know, c comedy is a uh, comedy is a collaborative venture. Uh, I, I know for the first first maybe even two thirds of my career, I uh, arrogantly arrogated credit for you know being funny. Like, uh, and it's hard not to. You know, I'm not blaming myself. It's hard not to go up there and say, yeah, look, you know. Not many people can go up on stage and stand in front of a crowd for an hour and make them laugh. Well, that's true. There's not many people that can do it for an hour and make them laugh and do it consistently. However, uh, you can't do it without the crowd. And you can't do it without a crowd that's paying for it and wants to be there. It's not like you're going to go out, round up a bunch of people, coerce them or encourage them to sit down and make them laugh. It really is a collaborative venture. And uh, 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 that was another step in my career. You know, the evolution as a comic was when I, when I started to recognize, you know, I, I really have to be more uh, uh, grateful for the audience and their participation instead of just, uh, you know, this is not a one man show, even though it appears to be, it's like a, it's like a, it, it's more like a maestro in front of an orchestra. And people used to ask me that, how do you put your set together? So I look, I feel like a chef really in a kitchen and everyone in the audience is either a spice or some kind of ingredient. And I'm not sure what I'm going to cook, but whatever it is, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it. Well, John, you know, it's so interesting that you said that because even like, for say, a newer comic, uh, like myself, I've, I'm, I've only been doing it six years, which is a sort of a short period of time. But when you do an open mic and it's just other comics, that's got to be the most difficult audience you could ever perform in front of because a they're trying not to laugh because they're afraid you might be funnier than them and they're very critical as you know so maybe that's really that's good training but you know you can when you tell your jokes to the real audience then you can actually tell whether they're funny or not well the, the one caveat i would add to that is if they're comics you don't know there's a difference if they're friends of yours that you're working with uh, and you're going up and, and you're there's times where I've played to the comics and completely ignored the audience and have done nothing but inside jokes, either because the audience was so bad or because um, the comics were just so good, you yeah. know, or I didn't care. But so it can go, it doesn't have to go just one way. If it's, a, if it's an open mic night of all strangers, yeah, that's a weird vibe because you know everybody's looking at you like, uh, you know, they're just hoping that you fall down uh, in front of the herd of, uh, in front of the herd behind it. Right. 
You know, I like that analogy about the uh, orchestra and the, uh, the conductor because I, I use that one often. That's exactly how I feel when I'm in the zone and basically just controlling the whole, the, the audience uh, with every word, like a maestro, you're building it up and then you, you know, you, you drop the punchline and you wait for the, for the crackle of the laugh to, to work its way around the room. Then you pick it up again. You could go a little slower, a little faster. That's exactly how I feel. Um, when I, when I'm up there and I'm cooking, that's the best feeling in the world. And the experiment I always like to do too, is I always like to, even pause it a little bit longer, take a little bit longer, you know, before I, before I give the tags, before I put the punchlines up, you know what I'm saying? Just to see how far I can stretch it, you know, with a face, you know, uh, with a physical action, you know, draw that out. Th those are beautiful moments when you, when you're fooling around with it like that. Take the, take the beat. Yeah. Sometimes edit. And it also helps when the crowd sucks, <laughs> you slow down, you get to stretch 15 minutes into uh, 25. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a secret in it to itself, because usually when the crowd sucks, you find yourself rushing through material just to find something that they like and, and, and go down that alley with, the, you know, take that track with them. And uh, that's a mistake. That's an easy mistake to make. Easy. Everybody yeah. makes it. I like to if I see that they're already going to suck. I'm all right. Yeah, you're going to suck. Well, guess what? So am I. Let me try this <laughs> shit out. I got a whole bunch of these things I'm not sure about. <laughs> you were gonna suck anyway, so let's go. Let's go down this alley together. <laughs> let's go down this alley together. Well, you know, <laughs> you look at a physical comedian like uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, and if you listen to him without watching him, he's not that funny. But because he's so phys his physicality and he he's so theatrical, he's funny as hell. You know. Yeah, right. That was like Robin. You could, if you listened to Robin work, you'd you'd be going, what, "What's up with that guy?" But then you watch him, right? And it's it's like, oh my god, you know. That's why, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Charlie Chaplin never thought that talkies would take off because he he thought back then, you, how you gonna uh, how you gonna translate every movie into a different language. So it was easy to change title cards. You know, title card writing used to be a, a, an Academy Award category. So w when Talking Movies came out, he thought, that, you know, you're only going to be able to play to English speaking audiences. Don't be ridiculous. If you want your movies to play around the world, they have to be silent and you have to have title cards. And so, uh, you know, that was his lesson to learn about uh, sights and sounds. Huh. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. He was a ballerina, really. That's what he was. You know the way he moved. That was ballet. he was, yeah, yeah. He he was. He, he really was. He was way more than uh, than just a comic. You know that was beauty. That that's the one with the skating and coming close to the edge. Uh, you know the one I'm talking about. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could every single time he gets close to that edge, I get scared. And you know he's not going to go over. You know it would kill the gag. Those old Buster Keaton films too, oh, where he, those one takes where the you know the whole facade of the building would fall down and he was standing right in the window frame. That classic one where he pulls the water down into uh, to 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 refill that the locomotive and he gets washed off the top of the tank. Did you ever see that one? Off the top of the locomotive, he actually broke his neck in that shot. Oh, good. Yeah, you know what's funny is that you can become uh, 
especially when you first start doing comedy, you can become like a stand-up comedy um, uh, snob in a way and not really appreciate the other forms of, of, of comedy, such as sketch, improv. It's its own thing. I, I did it. I, I'm not a big fan of improv, but, you know, I'll still, I'll still give it a, you know, it's fun sometimes depending on who's doing it. But, you know, we talk about uh, that type of comedy, Pratt Falls. Um, you know, there's so many other different types of comedy as well. You know what I'm talking about? So, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Too. So, um, I, I like to explore those as well. I have, the, yeah, I have a love hate relationship with improv. Like Jerry Seinfeld had a great line about improv. He said, uh, he said, I want to see something that's finished. Yeah. Yeah. But that being said, I've seen some improv guys, the ones that I, I th that were really truly genius at it, uh, whose line had some great guys. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, well uh, that show is great. When you watch that show, you like improv. Ryan Styles, he's just the guy's a gunslinger. Yeah, when you watch, uh, it's, there's some improv you watch, and it's it's tough. It's tough. It's like for me with poetry too. <laughs> poetry. I'm not. I'm not really good. I can't. You know, especially the uh, the ur that urban poetry. Woof. <laughs> you lose me real quick, man. It was a good day. I didn't have to use my AK. <laughs> no, you know what I'm talking about, the poetry slam. Yeah, I know. That stuff. Uh, I, I have this bit that I, I've i always, it's always in my head, and I, I do it rarely, but I don't know how, how I'm going to die. I don't think anybody does, really, unless you do heroin. Um, <laughs> but I know, I know there's a bunch of ways I'm not going to die. And one of them is like at the ballet, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, or at a poetry slam or uh, eating, like uh, getting choking on a leafy green vegetable. Cause I don't eat vegetables either. <laughs> or you know, skydiving. Like, I have a list of, it's about a hundred things. I know I'm not gonna die and it makes me feel comfortable. But one of them is at a poetry slam for sure. At a leafy, eating a leafy green vegetable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't eat vegetables too much. Ever. It's hard to get past the wheelchair. Hello. <laughs> That's I'm sorry. Have I offended anyone? I'm sorry. DeResta was telling me uh right. he did he did a gig the other day. He said he said he'd reached the the pinnacle of political correctness. He was in a back room of some comedy club with a bunch of other comics, and uh there was this guy from Australia who saw just saw John go on and was was complimenting him and going, oh, Mike, you are terrific. He goes, I love that accent. And he goes, it sounds a little retarded, but I love it. So the guy <laughs> steps out of the room and this uh, young, this young woman who I guess worked for the club came walking in with a list. And uh, she said, I'm looking for so-and-so. And John says, oh, the, the Australian dude. And she looks at him dismissively and says, he's much more than just that. Oh God! <laughs> what? And it's like, oh, okay, all right, that's enough. Oh, Where was God. this? A club? Yeah, some club. You know, John, uh, John's gigs. It's like, yeah, I got uh, ten minutes at a pie shop out in Pasadena. It's <laughs> it's twenty five bucks, and all the pie that's left over from the tables you can eat. <laughs> I spoke. I did a podcast with him, his brother. You don't know Jimmy Deresta, huh? Uh, maybe I do. I, yeah, I think I met Jimmy uh, first, actually. Jimmy did three Jimmy, shows. Jimmy, listen, What's I that? met Jimmy first at the New York Comedy Club 
in like night and when I first started doing comedy and he told me about John, but I didn't meet John till many years later. Well, for, any, for anyone who's listening, John DeResta is a comic who was a transit cop. Jimmy DeResta has his own YouTube channel with about 2 million followers, but they together did a couple of uh, TV shows, one called Hammered, one called Dirty Money and another Trash to Cash where they, they upcycled stuff from the garbage and uh, repurposed it and, and sold it. And it was fascinating to watch, but John was on the, um, John was on the, the podcast with Jimmy the other day. Oh, damn it. What were we just talking about? It was a story. It's something that John did um, some politically incorrect thing that he tripped over. I forget what the hell it was, but uh, oh, well, just blew out my head. <laughs> free, free plug for Jimmy DeResta. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy that I remember that I did know him. And if you if it comes back to you, just interrupt me. And okay. you know what I wanted to ask you? Um, you know, you do the cruise ships, and now what's going on with that? I'm done with those, dude. I'm, I, I've, I've had enough of them. I mean, I mean I'm they so, served because that was before COVID, you quit? I, I, was, I actually was on a ship. I went into New Orleans, into Mardi Gras, into New Orleans on Mardi Gras. And I had no idea at the time what was building. I got on the ship. Uh, we had two days out to sea. And I remember the third day, we had one show one night, one show another, and then I had a day off. And I just remember feeling really weak on that like third day. And by about six o'clock that evening, it was game on. And I didn't know it was COVID, but um, obviously in retrospect with everything, it was, you know, that it being a hot spot. And I heard about all these other people that got sick on the ship. I left the ship. I went to Vegas. I did my last show at the Laugh Factory on March 8th. I got off the stage. I went into the green room. A uh, doorman came in and he said, that's it. He said, the MGM just laid off their tier two employees. The strip will be dark in a week. And I thought, oh, dude, relax. You know, you stop being an alarmist. And the next day, March 9th, I came home and it was like that scene and get smart while the doors closed behind you. Boom, 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 boom. But did you, did you have COVID? Yeah, I got it. I had it for four days. Wow. That yeah. was quick though. It, it came and went like a, like a mild flu. You know, it was, it was, it was uh, it was interesting because I remember sitting I was sitting on the bow of the ship with, you know, fever. I had about 101, 102 fever. It would spike and then ebb and flow. But I remember sitting on the bow where only the crew could go, and I was wrapped up in a blanket. And we were heading we were heading back from Mexico, and um, I just remember looking up, and I thought, what a great way to be sick, you know. <laughs> I'm sitting. I'm talk, talk about being socially distanced. You know, I was in the middle of the Gulf. Yeah. <laughs> How, let me ask, how do they treat you on a cruise ship when you're talent? Do they treat you well or no? You know, they think they think they treat us well. Uh, to me, it's it's they could they could care less. They, we succeed in spite of the way they treat us. They they think that we're like some kind of prima donnas that all we do is work, you know, one or or two hours a night or one or two shows a night, and you know we have the rest of the time to relax and lounge and. You know, how dare we complain about anything, but they have no idea all of the skill sets in play to to make that gig work right. because they just they just put stuff in front of you that makes it more difficult and little things that 
I don't know where they come up with stuff, but they'll do it. And you find out about it when you're up on stage. It's like a tripwire. I remember one show, just to give you a small example, but you know what it's like when you're on stage. You, you, you want to be able to, you see the stage, you look at the parameters. It's like, okay, I've got 30 feet here to move around, 15 feet in one direction. This, I got a six foot thrust in front of me. Okay, and the crowd is sitting there. Nice. I was working the crowd. I went to take a, 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 I went to move to one side of the stage for whatever reason. And suddenly the mic comes flying. It was on a hard wire comes flying out of my hand and it just hit the ground boom and i picked it back up and i was like oh i guess uh i'm gonna have to ask for more cord for the next show i made some joke like whatever yeah so um i i was kind of nailed down to this one spot on the stage in this pretty pretty decent sized stage and i get off this sh- off the stage for the next show and i said um said to the to the sh- to the showroom manager i said hey can can we get some more cord um for uh, for the next show or some extra length or something and they said oh there's more cord it's just tied up underneath the stage and i said what do you mean it's tied up uh, whoever the guy was in charge of comedy prior to that for some reason came up with this new rule that comics can only have 20 foot of cord mm. and i said who since what when do you decide that it's like it's like the owner of a venue telling the musician you know uh you have to stay to the right side of the stage. Like, what do, you, what do you care where I go with it? And it's all of those, That's I know it sounds like a small detail, but you put 20, 30, 40 of those together and then you mix them up and it's in play this day, but not the next day. This ship says it's all right. That ship says it doesn't. They have no idea how they tweak the outcome of the show on, on all these little things they don't you know another comic said to me you know comics need to be treated like thoroughbreds and it's true you want us to run the race give us a nice stall and wipe us down it's it's you know we need a little extra encouragement if we're going to you know do this job properly you know you got to feel like it like you're being appreciated to go out there and want to do the job for them but do they do they put restrictions on you as to like what you can eat, where you can stay, where you can go, or, or yeah, you- they, you know, there's all kinds of, yeah, they, they try to tell you you're a crew member and you're this and you're that, and you can't go here and you can't go there. And I've found that that's just like the police department. When one person fucks up, a rule comes down that straps everybody. Right. But you also know that you, if you're smart, if you're, if you're savvy, uh, boss you know that everyone's a little bit different and you know you can say to somebody who's a little more aware you're supposed to be back at noon but i'll give you to 12 30 just don't let anyone see you you know right. just just make sure you're you're on post for the scratch when i show up you know you can just tell people stuff it's the same thing with comedy i mean i i was supposed to be uh you know you're supposed to wear slacks whenever you leave the cabin you're supposed to dress up on formal night and only one time did I ever get called on it. And the guy was totally cool. I was wearing shorts in a passenger area. It was formal night. I was sitting by myself reading a book. And the guy came over. He was the hotel director. It's his job. But he was totally cool. He said, hey, John, I'm sorry to bother you. But, you know, it is formal night. And you're supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to be wearing shorts up here. And I said, listen, no problem. I went down to my cabin and I changed, you know, but he was cool and I was cool. But there was only, there was one other time a guy, I almost lost my shit on some guy, cruise director saw me sitting after the show it was already midnight show was over and i was just sitting at the bar just unwinding and i had shorts on 
and he, he stopped by and he gave me the real nasty look and he went, excuse me, uh, this just doesn't work. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I had to choke back my response and just leave, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't work. Excuse me, this, this will never, this doesn't work. I was like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like a waste to even bring shorts with you. <laughs> that that way you don't do it. <laughs> no, nah, dude, I live in shorts. Well, when I was doing the ships, I lived in, I loved it. You know, I mean, again, you put yourself on the radar. You know how it is. If you fly low and you don't, you don't cause trouble, you rarely, you rarely get caught up in their nonsense. And when you do, you do what you're supposed to do. You go, sorry, my bad. I won't do it again. And of course you're going to do it again, but that's what you got to say. Yeah. I think I think cruise ships work in a way for comedians too because by the time you get to the point where you're going to do cruise ships, you know you realize it's become it's become an employ it's become your main source of income. Yeah, it's over at that point. <laughs> no, what I'm saying it's it's your main source of income, and you're not going to fuck up your job. It's not like you're getting these young comics who are who are wild and looking to make a fucking name for themselves, or, you know. And they're breaking shit up. They want to be rock stars slash comedian. No, this is this is a guy who's doing this for a living. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised. Oh, really? Oh, dude. There's so many guys I work with that have shot themselves in the foot over and over and over again. Uh. Yeah. I mean, you, you just know you don't you don't hit on the passengers. You don't get drunk in public areas. You know, you don't even get drunk in the crew areas. You stay to yourself. And there are guys that um they just can't help them. It's like a sickness. You know, you watch them and they're not kids either. I'm not going to name names that these are grown men in their forties. Some of them in their, you know, pushing 50 and they're still getting hammered and chasing tail and, 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 and being high on their, uh, on, on the screen. And it's like, I just back, I just blend. They just go way I, back. I, I thought you were going to say they get high and they're on the supply. I was like, they do that too. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean the screen? What's that? What do you mean they get high on the screen? You're talking about uh, the cameras? No, the radar screen. Well, the cameras too. Yeah, you know, everything's on, everything's, uh, you know, visible now. You know, they have they have everything wired for sight and sound. So you you can barely go anywhere on the ship without somebody having, being able to see you, you know? And they wanted, they want comics to wear name tags. And I, I refused to wear them. The only time I would wear them would be in a, I would put uh, my ID tag, not my name tag. I put my ID tag on my, on my shirt for security reasons. But I'm not wearing an, I'm not wearing a name tag. Right. So you what, made you, what made you think that, that you've had enough of doing cruise ships? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? My health. I was getting really resentful, and tired. It was the same. It was the same actors, um, same lines, but. Um, different scenery every day you know it was just it was, it was just a grind it became it, it really became not just not fun to do anymore it was start, it was starting to wear me out I, I just had enough of it had yeah, enough yeah of it. you've done it for years so you've got that you got that out of your system it is yeah. out of my system I mean I I would I can't say no that I would never do comedy again but uh not at not at the pace that I was doing it I'm not living out of a suitcase anymore yeah I mean you did it for years you did it for years. I mean, I could see where it's okay. <laughs> it's all right. I could do something else. Yes. I've, I've made a, I, I've earned every, I'm the house I'm sitting in the car I own. I paid for with jokes. Yeah. I look around my place and, and sometimes if I'm not feeling uh, 
that great. I said, well, you know what? This couch, that TV, that's all, that's from this commercial. I got this from this. You know, you start looking at all the money that you made from, uh, you know, from the work that you've done. And that's what kind of so keeps you sane a little bit anyway. Well, it's not even, you know, the money is a side effect. I think about the experience of being on stage, which uh, only if a handful of people really know what it's like to be up on a stage and rocking a hot crowd. And that's a, that's a real privilege to be able to stand up there and be able to do that. And, uh, you know, thank God for this country, because maybe with the exception of Canada or England, and they're, a, they're definitely behind in that regard, I'm not putting them down, but the, to, to get on stage and to be able to express yourself creatively without any, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, boundaries, is really a, an amazing experience. It's it's yeah, un- maybe, incredible, maybe, and maybe it was an, an experience. Just, we'll see what happens now. Because- well, you know, I mean, the, the the principle of it is there, though. But to be to stand up on it is probably one of the purest forms of entertainment, stand up comedy, mm-hmm. because you, with the exception of lighting and sound, to some degree, you do everything. You write, produce, edit, direct, perform. Uh, you do it all, and. Uh, I, I can't think of another art form that gives you, or another country or another place, even New York City and LA are pretty unique in that regard, Chicago, Boston, you know, to be able to just go up with nothing in mind per se, and to create an hour of entertainment. It's exhilarating, it's addicting. I don't know, you know, I was, I absolutely was addicted to it, without a doubt was addicted to it. Yeah, I mean, but you got to be doing something else, though, creatively, because that's the type of person you are. I mean, have you found that other outlet yet? You know, I don't have to be doing something else creatively. I do enjoy it. I found uh, what what uh, somebody asked me when I quit drinking. They said, what was the turning point for you? And uh, I said, well, I went from being in recovery to being in discovery. And they said, what, do you, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, nobody wants to quit drinking. They want to start living. So to try to be creative all the time. Nobody's creative all the time. And although it's fun, it's a fun experience. What I found is I can be content all the time. And I didn't know that. I was always tr- chasing contentment behind a microphone. You know, I was looking for the next big, uh, I, was, I was looking for the next hot crowd. I was looking for the next bit I could put in. I was looking for the next show I was going to perform on or, or host. I mean, I heard Jerry Seinfeld in an interview with Howard Stern and Howard's a brilliant interviewer. And he said, he was teasing Jerry about his lifestyle. You know, I wish I was you. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And Jerry was, it was one of the first times I I really saw him like in a moment and he had a brilliant observation. He said, you really think I have some kind of, uh, you know, unicorn life. And Jerry said, yeah, look at you. He goes, yeah, look at me. He said, I'm a father. He said, I'm a husband. I have responsibilities to other family. He said, I have a company with employees. He said, I have to also, I have a career. He goes, and on top of that, he said, I'm a comic. He said, so my day is filled, consumed, if you will, with thinking about punchlines, premises, setups, tags, this and that. And he says, comedy is simply a torture that I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And that just flattened me because I realized that for years, comedy was a torture I was being comfortable with. And now 
now that comedy for me, it seems is in the rearview mirror, I had to find something else to be comfortable with, to be content with. And so I've learned to be content without anything. I've learned to just be content for that sake alone. And that trumps, pardon the pun, that tops anything that I've ever done as a comic, anything I've ever done as a cop, anything I've ever done as a, per a person, just learning to just be good with whatever's coming down the pike. That's huge, huge, because then you don't have to worry about the ne next gig or the next paycheck or the next anything. doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, if, if when in the beginning of COVID, I was thinking if this is what it's going to be like, uh, you know, doing Zoom shows, uh, I was like, uh, I, I, I'm okay. I might not want to do this anymore, you know? But that's only because there's a, we have the podcast that's a creative outlet for me. I'm also an actor. So, I, you know, if then I'm like, I'll just dive more into acting. But, you know, if you put a paper and pen in front of me, I'll, I'll start drawing. So I'm always doing something creative, writing something. But I'd have to keep doing something. Like, I couldn't, like, stand up. It's okay if it, ha if, if it left. I did it for 23 years. I'm okay, you know. Um, but I, I can't I cannot do not, nothing. You know what I'm right. saying? Right. No, no, you can't not do nothing. I agree. I mean, you look at a guy like Stephen Hawking, who was in that, you know, broken down scuba suit for, you know, more than half of his life. He was one of the most prolific creators of our of our of our generation, and yeah, you'll channel it into something else. When I finished radio, I I found creative ways to do police work. You know, when I got bored with myself, I would go out and and intentionally you know create things to do in uniform that I found fun. And people were like, "Hey, I never saw a cop do that before," and I was like, "That's the first time I ever saw it too," <laughs> and it was totally within my purview. But yeah, I agree. The creative, the creativity will find its form outwardly. My thing was I put restrictions on it. It had to be on a stage. It had to be as a quote unquote comic. And that was my mistake. I, I, I tried to limit it and you can't limit creativity. It, it, it'll just express itself in, in ways you, you, you wouldn't even imagine if you let it. Yeah, I think we're fortunate in being in New York City, or at least on the East Coast over here, um, that you have so many other things that you can do. If you're a comedian, you can very easily be getting parts on TV. You can, like, you know, Bill, um, he does a lot of modeling work. Uh, he's a, he, Tell him about, he's a foot model. He has really nice feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he models socks on the radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he does. He does, he models. And uh, he's got a good look. Um, hey, you know what's the talent that you got, John? That most people wouldn't know. Just uh, you can dance pretty good. I was watching the video uh, that you have on on YouTube. There, you come out on oh. stage to happy. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely move, baby. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, the yeah. so what was who saying that that uh, come along? Pharrell. Yeah, yeah. If you're happy, yeah, yeah. You know what's funny? That was that was that was a last minute. Um, ad lib if you will i remember i was that tape i had a, I, I i had it in mind to make that a tape for actually cruises uh they needed a you know they needed a clean 30 minute set to show to the buyers and i walked in it was it was at governor's and the place was packed and i was i was listening to that song on the way to the club and at the very last minute uh the, the uh, jenny who was running the, the club that night at governor's said, what do you want for intro music? And I said, I don't care, you know, just something upbeat. And then just as I was heading backstage, I went, I like that song by Pharrell. 
And I ran back out and I said, can you play happy? And she goes, I just loaded up something else from my uh, Pandora or whatever it was. I went, I went, okay, whatever. And then she went, I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. I'll play happy for you. And I said, all right. <laughs> so when the song, when the song started playing, I came out on stage. It just, I went, that was it. it was like, it was just, it worked out perfectly. It was just that that was the first time I ever did it. And it worked out great. So even though with so many years of doing cruises, you're still uh, putting together new tapes so other people can see them, huh? No, that was five years ago. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not putting anything new together as far as comedy is concerned at the moment. I'm doing stuff like this. I'm jumping on other other people. I'm talking about like even though you be, you were doing the cruises forever, there's always another level of cruises that you can reach, right? You mean literal level no, of cruises? I'm just, like, saying, I'm just saying. Because you said you were putting to, you already doing cruises and you're putting together a tape for another set of cruises, right? No, no, that was, I was just, no, that was in regard to that. Sorry, I'm not putting together any tapes for, for I'm, anything. I'm it. You, we, we, and my point is that I thought that, you know, because I, I could imagine at some point you're doing, uh, you know, private gigs for, 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 uh, small, for, for small groups of rich people on their, on their bo boats and stuff like that. You ever do stuff like that? I've not I've not done them, but I've heard comics that do like some of those high end cruises like Crystal Seaborn. Um, they're really like minimum passage minimum is ten thousand dollars a person. And uh, there's a butler for every three cabins and all the meals are cooked to order. And uh, you have to, you're actually it's in your contract. You have to go out and intermingle or commingle with the uh, with the passengers. You have to wear a jacket every time you leave your cabin. But it's it's white glove service. That being said, I'm told they're the most arrogant, condescending crowds you could ever play to. And there's a handful of guys that do it. That the money's phenomenal. But uh, I, I, you know, you're paying me five, seven grand a week to go out and basically bomb for a bunch of snobs. I don't know how long that's going to stay stay good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll take two, please. But John, were you saying before, I, maybe I misheard you, that you're basically done with comedy or, or, or you're just going to do That's it? how I, I could be wrong. I'm, my vibe is it's over and um, not so much because I feel like it's done, which I do. I just think for, my, for me in my lifetime, I don't see this coming back, gearing back up for at least another two years to where you can make a living at it. Right. It's what you know, you'll be able to poke around and jump on stage and go here or go there, but uh, to make a living at it, I'm, I'm thinking two, maybe three years, and by then I'm done, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a real, that's a realistic way of that's the best way I've heard it put, you know, poking around at it. Because right now, you know, if you're down here in the city, you're not even really poking, you could poke a lot more than what we're doing, and it could build up to that, but. For what it for like to get back to where it's a staple of your income or your primary source, yeah, like you said, um, <laughs> people are gonna have to come back in like two years, man. Three yeah, years. yeah, the whole thing caved in on itself, and I think these, you know, these these people that are rushing out there and and doing these Zoom shows and doing this and that, you know, that's all what that's all well and good, but you know, when life tells you to take a big time out. And you don't listen. I, I think that doesn't serve you. You know, I see a lot of guys trying to run, you know, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. And um, 
it's it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Stand-up comedy is an art that uh, really, in my opinion, it needs it needs the, the the comedian, a good light, good sound system, and uh, Kipadada once said, you know, a, a a paying audience, people that have put a value on their time and their money and their effort to be there. It needs those components. It's like it's like the heat triangle, you know, heat, oxygen, and uh, <laughs> what's the third one? Huh? Carbon dioxide. Heat. That was photosynthesis, I think. No, no, the heat triangle. It's heat, oxygen, and fuel. Right, that's right. Yeah. Right, fuel. So it's, you know, that's the, um, that's the dodecahedron of comedy. You need those elements to make it to work. Because the, the prime example was the ships. You know, that you did not have a paying audience, per se. They paid for the ship, and then they put you in between karaoke and bingo and expect them to respect the art and it wasn't like that right that's tough yeah that's that's so interesting what you're saying you know like um you know like we talked about seinfeld before he said that under the best of circumstances uh stand-up comedy is a very difficult thing to pull off you got the light you got the stage um you got a paying audience that's there to see stand-up comedy right um you got a sound system that works um, the stage is in the center room, everything that's perfect. But like, as you know, people can't help themselves situations. They start picking away uh, little pieces of it. And this is, I'm talking about past gigs, you know, the gig that's at the VFW. That's still good, but you know what? It's not a comedy club. Uh, the lighting's not great. The sound system sucks, but we're good. It, it was a great show, whatever. But now what they're asking you to do, it's so far removed from what stand-up right. comedy is, right? That it's a whole other thing now. You know, you're basically looking into a camera and telling jokes for a camera, which it's not going to last too long. I mean, it's going to evolve into something else if you really, really, really want to stay with it. Yeah, don't call it stand-up comedy then. It's it's something else, but I wouldn't call it stand-up. But you, to to be, you guys know when when you have a real comedy club, a paying audience and good lights good sound and a mic and, and, a, and a sturdy mic there is something about that combination that literally provides magic it's magic and you can't do it uh via skype or zoom or anything else you might hit it you might scratch it occasionally but you have to be immersed in it you know that whole sense of of, of uh, community, there's like a community with it, with an audience when it's there. You know, there's this, there's uh, the one thing about a comedy club is, and there's one of the, it was one of the few places uh, left, in my opinion, in, in the world where a group of people could gather and agree upon one thing. And, you know, you'd go up and you go, you know, the MC would typically say, does everyone want to have a good time? You'd rarely see a dissenter in that rank and file. You know, you'd rarely see someone go, I want this to suck. You know, <laughs> it was one of the few real, you know, democratic experiences you could have where you go, OK, we're all going to agree on this. Right. We're here to have fun. Right. And for the yeah. most part, you were the uh, the leader of that of, of that uh, party, of the fun party. It was That's great. one of the things, uh, you know, when you become a, a like a veteran comic. 
when I was new, I remember mistakenly being by the entrance of the club and listening to audience filling in and the stupid things they'd be saying to each other. Or if I peeked in and it was, uh, it looked like a little loud before the show or something, I don't know what, it's just, you're finding excuses to, that, that this might not work where I, it's going to work. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Just let me get up there. You know, that's my attitude for the last 10 years. It's going to be fine. Wait till I, wait till I get up there. It's going to be great. And um, I think that that's, uh, you know, you can, you can let, you can very easily let, let the room dictate you unless you, you know, you've, you've grown into somebody that is so comfortable being in front of a room full of strangers. And it's an odd thing. I mean, it's, it's it's hard as a, as a human being not to project your fears onto other. I would say it's impossible, actually, as a human being. You you can ultimately become aware of it and do it less and less, but it's impossible not to project your fears onto things. And for comics in particular, uh, they project their fears onto everything, and it's usually other comics, the audience, the MC. Uh, I remember a guy once who said to me. Uh, I said, what do you want for an intro? He said, I don't care, make something up. So I went up on stage and I gave this guy an intro. It was probably two minutes long. And I said, he's a you know, Guild nominated writer. He's, he's, a, this, he's, he's he'll gonna, gonna be in the next uh, Chris Rock movies, co-starring with this, he's co-starring. And I, it was all just made up. So the guy goes out and he tanks. <laughs> Came backstage screaming at me that I gave him too good of an intro. He said, he said, he actually said to me, I couldn't follow my intro. <laughs> and I just thought, dude. We got, we got to close out because we're over way over an hour, but I'll give you a good uh, intro story. Uh, Tony Woods used to do this intro. He used to go to the audience. How many people in here have watched Def Comedy Jam? Woo! How many people here watch Showtime's uh, Night at the Apollo? Woo! How many people here watch The Tonight Show? Woo! The next coming, come, uh, next coming up, coming up on stage. He watches those same exact shows, folks. <laughs> That's great. Oh, he used to kill every well, single you know, something, time. There's something about misdirection that works every time. <laughs> it's done well. It, it works every time. Wait a minute, the comic didn't become offended and sue him and go to a safe space? Dude, I got it. Hold on, I got it. We open up a comedy club called The Safe Space. What do you think? Yeah, that would be good. And we we just make it like um, a crazy place. Like uh, the, the, the last stop for free speech. Comedy safe space. Everyone gets a hug as they come in. Yeah. As soon as you... Remember that place that was in Brooklyn, I think it was, uh, Warm Beer, Lousy Food? Yeah, the crazy country club. Yeah. Remember how they used to make fun of you? They used to come to your table. Oh Imagine yeah. You had a place like that now. Oh my God. Forget about it. Yeah. Like they'd come up to your table and go, How old are you? Jeez. What the hell? Yeah, get some rest. Yeah. <laughs> how many months pregnant are you? I'm not pregnant. You fat bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the host would come out and he it was a you couldn't have those places anymore. I wouldn't be surprised now Halloween is coming that there's people going to they're going to make complaints because they got they really got scared when they went to the haunted house. <laughs> you know, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna dress up so benignly that uh, you're gonna have to guess my gender. <laughs> I don't. And think then when you don't village uh, comedy, uh, excuse me, Halloween parade this year. No, no, wait, no, nope. right? Yeah, well, you, you know, know one of a story about that. I went to that. I was working right after 9/11, and I went to the West Village um, Halloween parade, and it was like horrible. It was like a ghost town, and for a different reason, obviously. The whole, you know, the world was not in the mood for Halloween after 9-11, you know? You know, I worked at two, and I met, I hooked up with uh, the people that cut my hair for, for years, but that was, uh, that was that night, and I, that was actually a pretty good night for me, all the way around. That was yeah. a pretty good night. I mean, that, I miss those days where, you know, uh, uniform that that blue the blue the blue magnet yeah you know the blue mag well i bet it was <laughs> well, yeah. i used to love work, working things that i would enjoy going to if i wasn't working oh, yeah i didn't like the fact that i was working well, it was nice to get paid for doing something that you enjoyed you know it made me crazy though you know watching other people have fun and not really being able to just relax but it was well, i saw a lot of things i wouldn't have seen I wouldn't have been at this place or ever gone to it if I didn't have to work it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that was cool. Anyway, we're almost at an hour and 20. Uh, what do you think, Bill? I just want to plug, out? yeah, I want to plug something. Well, obviously Mark and I have uh, our Patreon, which is, we're starting to build it up. We're, we're adding like one person, we're averaging like one person a week. We're up to almost we, 29 people. We've been doing it for two months, but it's starting to pick up a little bit. And Mark <clears throat> has a show called One-on-One -on -One with Mark DeMeo that he's interviewing some people, so far mostly comics. And I have a show called Real Crime Episodes. And this Wednesday, I have one of my most amazing guests that I've uh, had so far. And her name is Barbara Butcher. And she's a retired uh, chief medical legal investigator for the office of the chief medical examiner. And Barbara and I are going to talk about the Gilgo serial killer homicides out on Long Island. And so tune in, kids. Yeah, well, we're not going to be able to solve this case in an hour, but she's going to give her thoughts about it. Uh, she's a scientist, obviously. So she's going to talk a lot about DNA and evidence and all of that stuff. So it should be a really interesting show. So all you people out there, we have three tiers. $7 is the bucket. $9 is polish my rack and the premier tier is dipped in butter and that's eleven dollars a month so dip them in butter for eleven a month join our patreon um, are you talking about uh DeMeo's night at uh, the gay halloween parade <laughs> <laughs> yeah he dipped them in butter that night <laughs> polish my rack it's the blue magnet that's your new superhero logo blue magnet <laughs> And you know what's funny is that I had thought of, you, you popped in my head. Um, this is funny. This is the way comedy gigs work out too, for me anyway. I'll get like three gigs in one day, and it's just something about the universe. People, I mean, there's a lot of everybody's thinking about you at the same time because I reached out to you, John, and I asked you to be on uh, on the podcast, and then um, Bill reaches out to me like. 10, 20 minutes later and goes, hey, I just asked John Marooney to be on the podcast. And I was like, I just asked him 
That's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. And we didn't talk before that. It's oh. just something that uh it's just we were both thinking about you at the same time. So, you know, you mentioned that gay thing. Maybe if you really, you know, maybe this is meant to be like a threesome or something. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because uh as as Bill reached out to me and said, I you know, did Mark ask you about the podcast? I said to him, I can't work with the mail. And so he knew that going in. <laughs> The See, blue magnet. <laughs> hey, Bill, were you wearing your pants when you thought about John Maroney as a guest? I was. I was. You know. Were you wearing your bike <laughs> shorts? I, I used to say that, that the, the, the Chiefs' little suck boy used to carry around alcohol prep pads so he could he could polish the the boss's undercarriage. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna do DeMeo De, De in uniform at the. Uh, at the gay Halloween parade. Yes, yeah, so uh, I need somebody to do my hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, uh, you know, it's like, uh, I gotta keep the blue magnet looking good. <laughs> it's a little bit like Vinnie Barbarino. Oh, it's yeah, amazing, you know, it's just wild. It's just, uh, I can smoke pot now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that, you could probably do it forever and I keep laughing every time, but you were- It's a still funny, you gotta, you gotta laugh, guy, you gotta laugh. <laughs> funny, you know, it's just funny. Funny's funny. Good. What do you think? He does me good, right, Bill? Does it great? I think you're the best one. I think you're the best one. I don't want him to quit comedy, man. He can't do it. Can't. He's not going to quit. He'll be back. Uh, but he does. He does. You did bring up a really interesting point: is that you're going to be book playing around, bullshitting, poking around. The truth is, it's going to be gone for two years, possibly maybe three, before you can start making a living at it. So you got to figure out what else you're going to do in the meantime. Otherwise, you're a fool. Well, I got two cop gigs, and you don't. <laughs> you want to well, get back on a job? I know somebody up here. You want to get on a job? How far out of you are from the city? I mean, from the Bronx? By ambulance? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, how, how far upstate are you? If I go just to the Bronx, I'm 90 minutes. Wow, you're up. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty far. I have to, I have to like. <laughs> both the, oh, hey, 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 90 Ooh. minutes from the Bronx. Hey, forget yeah, about that. Me. It was depending on people dipping and dipping them in butter for us to get paid. We just oh. got our first Patreon payout, right, Mark? Yeah, hey, listen. So pretty neat, right? <laughs> I told Bill, man, it's a, it's a, this is, there's a lot of, it's another thing. A lot of people making money, or you think they are. Nobody really knows how much they're making, but the truth is, um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta build it up. You know what I'm saying? You gotta start from somewhere and you, you just do the work. It's just Dude, like you know, stand up. Before you know it, you're booked every weekend, but you can't just complain about it all the time. You gotta do the work. Jay, Jay Leno used to say, you know, for people who uh, would crit criticize <clears throat> comics, you know, working comics, you know, trying to make it quote unquote in the business or at least get to a point where they could make a living. Jay said, and I agree, he said, you have to look at comedy like any uh, endeavor, educational endeavor. Uh, four years of a, of a college degree is the equivalent of your paying your dues as a comic. If after you graduate high school and you are gainfully employed and you spend four years diligently working at your craft and you're good at it, or you're at least you should be doing it, you can make a you, you could at the at back then you could make a living as a very comfortable living as a stand-up comedian 
Yeah, it that takes was, about four years, four to five years for the average person to put together uh, an act, the average comic, working constantly. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But then, like you said, there's a million comics now, and it's a little bit different than back then. It's not the boom. Um, it could take you. I always tell people they'll jump at the fact if I told the comic, I'll give you $1,000 a week for your comedy, um, 50 weeks out of the year. They would jump at it in a heartbeat. What is that? That's $50,000 a year. No health insurance. It's nothing. It's peanuts. It's fucking garbage. Uh, you know, I'm not even talking about paying uh, taxes on that. So the reality is it takes a while. And there's only a tiny, small group of people that actually make the, the, the real, the big money that everybody's talking about. So agree my niece is going through medical school right now and um she was blown away when i told her this because obviously she sees what you know how much money and effort it takes but there are fewer professional stand-up comedians working than there are professional neurosurgeons working mm. there's few, there's more neurosurgeons could as at that earn a living in this country then there are professional stand-up comedians. Think about that. And what you have to be, go through to become a neurosurgeon. Right. Now extrapolate that out and imagine what it takes to be a professional stand-up comedian. It's such a hard, hard job. Forget the fact that you might be funny. Uh, all the other skill sets that you have to learn along the way that not many people tell you about are almost as hard as learning how to get on stage in front of a crowd of strangers and make them laugh. They're almost as hard. And uh, everybody used to have that joke about, uh, you know, I get up at noon and right. I don't do nothing all day. Listen, that, that comic hasn't been around for a decade. If that's the type of person you want to be, you, you're never going to be anything in this business. You, everybody's got a podcast. They got a web series. They got a, a blog, a vlog that they write. They're on uh, social media all day. They're going out auditions. They're writing screenplays. I mean, we're talking about people, you know, in the competitive market like New York, that this is what they do. If you're not doing that, you know, you can do comedy at night, but you have to do all that other stuff, too, because you don't know what's going to hit. You don't know what's going to hit. And nope. uh, that, 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 uh, that pilot that you sell, that's going to be able to pay your rent for a couple of months so you can, you can do more comedy, you know? Anywho. Well, well, good we'll, luck, boys. We'd love to have you on again, John. All right. And John, it's a good thing though we got pensions, so that's how we beat the system. I'm dipping. I'm dipping my butter as we speak. <laughs> <You're born. laughs> gotta dip them in butter. All right. That's the only way. It's good luck too. All right. Well, I'm gonna take a nap, and I'll see you in a couple hours. We're All doing right, a couple. John, playing a couple headed today, John. All right. Take John, care, a gentlemen. Day, I miss you, and you're the best, brother. All right. So long. <laughs> <laughs>